0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we're joined by Max Blumenthal from The Gray Zone to discuss his work there, as well as his book, The Management of Savagery. We'll touch on topics ranging from the Shadow Corporation rigging the primary in Iowa to propaganda about Syria and the Uyghurs in China.
1: Hey, Max, how are you doing?
2: Pretty good.
0: How's it going?
1: Thank you so much for coming. I'm very honored to have you here. Um, before we get started on your book, which I originally wanted to talk about, do you want to talk about the not conspiratorial, very coincidental series of coincidences you, <laughs> you dug up with regards to the Iowa caucus?
2: Basically, uh, at the Gray Zone, we've been following this network, this political network, that surrounds a Silicon Valley billionaire named Reed Hoffman. And uh, we tracked what he was doing starting in Alabama in 2017 through Project Birmingham, all the way through a series of kind of Facebook disinformation campaigns and Reed Hoffman's network pops up again in Iowa through this 33-year-old consultant whom no one had heard of before, Tara McGowan, who somehow controls a $75 million dark money operation called Acronym. And Reed Hoffman is the founder of LinkedIn. He's ah. worth $2 billion. He's good friends with Peter Thiel. He was a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. And so you can kind of imagine that, you know, he might favor a candidate like Pete Buttigieg over Bernie Sanders, but that he also has more in common with Donald Trump than Bernie Sanders, at least in terms of his sort of class interests. What Reid Hoffman did after Trump was elected was start to kind of supplant the traditional Democratic Party infrastructure with all of these, uh, what he called founders. And they were like 30 and 40 something data-centric, whiz kids who came out of the Obama and Hillary um, 2016 campaigns. And they're all social media focused. He spun out all these different groups, including ACRONYM, which turns out to be the most significant Tara McGowan's group. But at the the same time, Reid Hoffman and his political strategist, Dimitri Melhorn, who is very similar to Pete Buttigieg, Harvard Kennedy School grad. He's a uh, McKinsey veteran, total neoliberal. They were running disinformation campaigns across the country. To get Democrats elected in the 2017 Senate special election between Doug Jones, who is this moderate Republican running as a Democrat, and Roy Moore.
1: Who's a pedophile. They deployed Project. I- for, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. A serial pedophile running as a Republican.
2: <clears throat> yeah, serial pedophile. And you would think, you know, the pedophile stuff or him dating 14 uh, year olds kind of like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Dazed and Confused, but there's this one character. Um, who's always, uh, who's, he's the old, old guy in a, like, a muscle car and he's always hanging around the high school and he says, uh, you know, I keep getting older but the girls stay the same. Ew. <laughs> that's Roy Moore. Um, so I thought that would be enough to beat him in a state like Alabama that's sort of culturally conservative. But uh, what these guys proceeded to do um, Reed Hoffman was he took $100,000 dollars, channeled it through a democratic tech firm called American Enterprise Technologies, and then they channeled the money, you know, to create some kind of deniability to uh, new knowledge, which is a firm that is, again, you know, these 40-something tech guys who were on the Obama campaign, but also worked in like Pentagon at DARPA and did all of these national security state projects. And they took out fake Facebook pages for a dark horse Republican write-in candidate who was a lawnmower salesman, then started shopping that guy to the media. They even tried to set up a super PAC for him. The whole point was to take Republican votes away from Roy Moore. And he even got, he got this lawnmower salesman got interviews even in Mother Jones. You know, it's crazy if you look at the Mother Jones article, there's like a, fundraiser above it from David Korn, pledging to fight Russian disinformation. Um, But, you know, they were basically participating in a disinformation campaign. At the same time, Russian bots were purchased Mm -hmm. with Cyrillic names and then those bots were attached to Roy Moore's Twitter account. They followed his Twitter account en masse. And then the national media was told that the Kremlin is interfering in Alabama in support of Roy Moore. Of course, Putin wants to you know uh, destroy the integrity of our elections and spoke, spark division. It turns out that these were just homegrown disinformation artists who were doing it, cashing in their documents the, the sort of Project Birmingham documents were eventually leaked or discovered um, by Scott Shane and I mean this is the craziest part of the story. Scott Shane is a reporter for The New York Times. He went to a like a briefing of the tech company that oversaw this that was paid by Reed Hoffman and at the briefing he found out that they had done this disinformation campaign he signed a non-disclosure agreement and then he waited several months to reveal that this took place this just this heinous attack on democracy which you know was much was probably much more decisive than anything Russia is accused of doing
1: Oh, wait, I have um, a quick question. question. Yeah. So do they know if like that weird, like, I know that Doug Jones got only 1.5% more votes. So yeah. Did that disinformation campaign actually work or did it take away more votes from Doug Jones?
2: No, they claimed that they were decisive in favor of Doug Jones. They were taking votes away from Roy Moore. Oh, sorry. Right, for the third party candidate. So they claimed in this meeting that Scott Shane attended that they won the Alabama special Senate election. I guess many people might be happy about that, but the tactics they used were what they called Russian disinformation tactics. They actually called it that. So Scott Shane waited months to reveal this. And in those months, the Senate Intelligence Committee came out with a report on the Russian Facebook pages from the Internet Research Agency. And, you know, these were ridiculous pages. They're like $100,000 of ads from a private troll farm in St. Petersburg that 56% of them came out after the election. They had no impact. Some of them were um, pages for buff Bernie LGBT-themed coloring books. Like y-
1: Yes, I've seen that. And the Hillary masturbation Jesus meme. Yeah, yeah, e-
2: exactly. Just ridiculous stuff. And the Senate was treating this like Pearl Harbor combined with nine eleven.
1: Oh, somebody actually called it Crystal, N- I forgot who, but some MSNBC pundit, I really remember, called it Crystal Noct or something like that.
2: Well, great. I mean, at least they weren't trivializing the Holocaust. Um, But the firm that the Senate Intelligence Committee contracted to write the report on this, you know, Holocaust, Pearl Harbor, 9 11 (laughs) was new knowledge. Oh, a lot. New knowledge, which was responsible for doing much worse tactics in Alabama than it raised. And Scott Shane held on to his knowledge of that until after uh, the Senate Intelligence Report was released. So
1: that is sounds like self-dealing and a huge conflict of interest that they should have revealed up front.
2: Well, I and mean, when you consider that Scott Shane was the reporter who covered the Senate Intelligence Committee report, then that's pretty shocking. I mean, that's journalistic malpractice. And Dan Cohen at The Gray Zone called him out, and Scott Shane was, you know, there's a good there's a good series of Twitter exchanges there. But the point of me just recounting this whole episode is this is the havoc that Reed Hoffman was wreaking on American democracy already in 2018. That same year, he and Dmitry Melhorn set up a group called News for Democracy. And it was a literal fake news farm. <laughs> Dmitry Melhorn actually said that our, we aim to mirror, these are exact, his exact word was mirror, mirror the tactics of the internet research agency of Russia in what we do to um, attract new users. And what they were doing with these fake news pages was trying to bring center-right voters into the Democratic Party to vote for Democratic candidates in swing states. So they'd set up a page in Virginia or Tennessee or something like that. It would be like community events, uh, patriotism, Tennessee sports, Christianity, and then they would pay Facebook hundreds of thousands of dollars for ads to just pump it into people's Facebook feeds. They'd attract oh. hundreds of thousands of users. And then when Election Day would roll around, they would start filling their feeds with, through these pages, Democratic messaging, attacking the Republican candidates and encouraging them to vote for Democrats. It's some pretty oh. amazing stuff.
1: Well, what I just... Thought of is that Reid Hoffman is connected with Mark Zuckerberg. So it almost sounds like he's funneling money into Facebook. I see the blatant, horrible conflict of interest. And of course, Russia, quote unquote, is what I always joke that Russia is code for our incompetence.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Incompetence, but also corruption. And uh, you make a really good point. He's paying his pal who he mentored. Um, this is a big boon for Mark Zuckerberg. So ultimately, uh, when these pages were exposed in the media, Facebook said they launched an investigation. i don 't know what that investigation consisted of, um, because Tara McGowan, who wrecked the Iowa caucuses, Tara McGowan has done the, is doing the exact same thing, and she 's been getting positive press. She got a puff piece written about her in Bloomberg by Joshua Green about how she's setting up all of these news pages, the Virginia Dogwood and the Alabama Copper Canyon or something in swing states that do exactly what I just described. (laughs) That kind of lure people with local news stories and then they pump them with democratic messaging. And if Russians were doing this, this would trigger some kind of giant Senate kangaroo trial. But these are like our own homegrown hucksters and so Tara McGowan, through acronym, gets all of these pro-Pete billionaires on board, just like hedge funders like Donald Sussman.
1: Do you want to talk about Donald Sussman? And I, I think he has a paper where he talks about when is genocide a good idea or something like that?
2: No, Um Well, that's, now. Seth Claremont has a- Oh, sorry,
1: sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. Donald Sussman is the MSNBC anchor's dad.
2: Well, she was not an anchor. She was a uh, a Center for American Progress pundit who went on MSNBC and um, stated that uh, if you vote for Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren, his daughter said this, that you are a sexist because she has better plans. Seth Clareman, uh owns the Times of Israel, which is actually kind of like a mainstream Zionist paper in Israel. But they had a op-ed section that was open to a lot of pro-Israel activists. And one person wrote a paper on it, when genocide is permissible, um, advocating for the genocide of Palestinians. And It stayed up for a while until public outrage prompted them to take it down. But Seth Clareman is a funder of Tara McGowan's Super PAC, Um, and someone who's maxed out on donations to Pete Buttigieg, and he's funding directly Israel's settlement enterprise. So, you know, the the connection there is that Pete Buttigieg is the most pro-Israel candidate in the race.
0: Ah,
1: and that makes sense as to why Democrats for Israel was running attack ads against the first Jewish potential president.
2: Well, yeah, sure. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not uh, considered solidly pro-Israel because he's recognized basically the humanity of Palestinians. So, I mean, uh, as you look at this whole picture, you consider the fact that Acronym spun out the Shadow Incorporated group that created this unworkable malfunctioning garbage app. Maybe it was programmed to fail. Maybe it was just a mistake. But if you take this all in its totality, it raises a lot of questions about whether something sinister took place in Iowa. And it also demonstrates that there's this giant apparatus that's deeply embedded in the Democratic Party infrastructure that is in the tank for Pete Buttigieg. I mean, Tara McGowan's married to senior advisor to Pete. So this is just absurd corruption. Bernie Sanders is up against not just a candidate, but against an entire party.
1: So let's say that every error is equivalent to a coin flip. So it happens via accident. So basically, they had nine errors help Pete and f- five more errors hurt Sanders. So 13 errors helped Pete. So that is 0.5 to the, oh no, 0.5 to the power of 13 is the probability that it is happened by chance alone or it is a cons- not a conspiracy. But then the next day, I kept on seeing these like ridiculous articles saying, not a conspiracy, not a conspiracy. So yeah, so I just wanted to talk to you about that. Do you have anything else to add about your discovery?
2: Well, I mean, we can just look forward to a contest between Pete's billionaires and Bernie's base, and uh, it's going to get uglier and uglier.
1: So, by the way, I really I listened to your book on audio, "A Management of Savagery," and what I really was shocked at was how you viewed, well, what was, didn't hit me before I read it, is how you connected the Islamophobia industry with the CIA actions, and then the white nationalist industry complex with that, like, so you basically gave a very coherent view of why we got Trump, as opposed to the Putin, Russia, kind of hysteria. And that's what I learned about it.
2: Right. I mean, there's so much there, but I mean, the whole concept of Islam as this malign, violent jihadist force, you know, how did that come into being? It wasn't always that way. People weren't talking about Islam that way in the 1950s or even the 60s. And, you know, of course, there's been a cottage industry, which actually was partly run out of Israel, of these kind of Chuck Norris Cold War action films that show scary Palestinians hijacking planes, But those were actually kind of like secular terrorists, even in those films. The idea of Islam as this uh, dangerous force and the reality of jihadism has so much to do with the CIA encouraging it and using it as a force to undermine the geopolitical foes of the U.S. I mean, today they're using it against Iran and Syria, but... During the height of the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union through Operation Cyclone, where the U.S. armed the Mujahideen, and the, which, who are the indigenous fighters of Afghanistan with Stinger missiles, with you know small arms. Um, but also, was the U.S. was working through Saudi Arabia, which was exporting its most extreme forces, kind of as like a ventilation mechanism, like get them out of get them out of here.
1: The Iqwan, right? <laughs> Sorry? Oh, they're called the release, like the first iteration of ISIS. Yeah, well, the thing first, that-
2: yeah, the Ikhwan were the, the, the original, um, you know, in the eighth century. But, um, you know, by 1979, when Operation Cyclone began, it was really, um, you know, th- they were taking after them and they tried to take over the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Um, and Osama bin Laden was kind of watching and hadn't quite made up his mind where he stood, but with his money and you know with the ideological fervor of people like Abdullah Azam, they went to the border of Afghanistan on the Pakistani side in Peshawar and set up the Services Bureau with the knowledge and help of the CIA and the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence, and. You know, this became the original base for Al-Qaeda. All the foreign fighters who wanted to come to Afghanistan, who were ideologically motivated, who wanted to make jihad, were coming through there. And in New York, there was a wing of the Services Bureau called the Al-Kifah Center, mm. in and New York City. And so after, um, actually after the Afghan proxy war was over, the CIA provided a special visa for the blind sheikh, um, Omar Abdul Rahman, to fly into the U.S., and take over the um, al kifa Center, um, right under the nose of the FBI. Um, and this is someone who was later put on trial. It was, it was a setup, it was a manufactured trial for bombing the World Trade Center the first time. But the point is that the US, every step of the way, was involved in kind of unlocking the monster of international jihadism. And when it came home. You have um, these kind wait of wait
1: one second um, yeah. before it came home, it took a little trip to Kosovo like two years before 9-11. Do you want to uh, talk? Sure. About I that?
2: mean, you have the golden chain of Saudi Arabian um, sort of charity groups that were funneling money directly to bin Laden. And as the Boston Globe reported at the time in one of the first mentions of bin Laden in U.S. media, uh, the Clinton administration was looking the other way. They were giving arms and money, tons of money, to the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was like what, like white Al Qaeda, basically.
1: <laughs> with you know, coke or something, right? They would deal cocaine.
2: They dealt cocaine. They dealt weapons. They dealt. You know, they were completely corrupt, and they were a mafia that the U.S. was hailing as freedom fighters.
1: And basically, it just happened, just like. The last payment was probably about a year before 9-11 that they were U.S. was literally paying Al-Qaeda, right?
2: Well, I don't know about I don't know if they were literally paying them. But, you know, a year before 9-11, the CIA was actually starting to act against bin Laden and it had pressured um, the Sudanese government to oust him. And so bin Laden was forced to go to Afghanistan where he took shelter with the Taliban. And this is another you know, fascinating saga because the US had initially supported the Taliban. Uh, they considered them sort of, well, first of all, the US destroyed Afghanistan. Half of Kabul lay in complete ruins because after the warlords that the CIA was funding ousted the Red Army of the Soviet Union, they began to fight each other. And these were just vicious gangsters. So they left Kabul in ruins. The infrastructure of the state was shattered. The Taliban comes in and they impose this harsh theocratic rule, but people welcome them because they want some kind of order. They stopped the War of the Warlords, and now there is one government. And they began cracking down on opium. People initially welcomed it. The US welcomed it because Unical, the oil company, wanted to build a pipeline to the Caspian Sea. Mm-hmm. And If there was, you know, civil strife, the pipeline was in danger. So the Taliban provided security for the pipeline, and the US State Department was very open about this early on. You know, it was, so bin Laden steps in, Mullah Omar, who is, he's a local Islamist. He's not someone like, you know, an ISIS-minded individual who wants to set up an Islamic state across Central Asia. He's happy to have his little caliphate in Afghanistan. And he's nervous about bin Laden being there. Everybody's nervous. Uh, they move him way out to like Host or one of these cities. They want to keep him away. But he's providing them with money they need to rebuild infrastructure. He's bringing mm. in all the Saudi money. The Saudis put most of their money into the, um, the, the uh, morality police. Just, oh, like,
1: the, what do you call it? The Mutwan.
2: Exactly. And so basically you're, Afghanistan becomes a little Saudi Arabia, and Bin Laden's there plotting terror attacks on the United States with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his gang, and ultimately uh, Afghanistan becomes, you know, the ba- the battleground that the U.S. is still trapped in right now as we speak.
1: Well, the thing that really bothers me is that I remember when you when I read your book, I realized that we did not need to go to war in Afghanistan because the Taliban had agreed to hand over bin Laden like two weeks after (laughs) 9-11.
2: Yeah, they were really uncomfortable about him and this could have been completely avoided. But the Islamophobia of the American mind conflated the Taliban with al-Qaeda, saw no difference there. The U.S. even attempted a police action at Tora Bora where bin Laden was hiding. And Tora Bora... Excuse me. These are shelters and caves that Bin Laden himself had built with his earth-moving equipment. His company does construction in Saudi Arabia, so he oh yeah, his in, dad's company. Yeah. So he brought in all this earth-moving equipment <laughs> during the proxy war against the Soviet Union, and the CIA funded all of that. So he knew all of the mountain passes. He had built the caves. The U.S. was dropping bunker-buster bombs. They were unable to dislodge them. And then the U.S. Army, basically the CIA came in with bags of cash and then paid a bunch of warlords. Again, they're just paying the warlords to do their bidding to go up and try to uh, get al-Qaeda out. And you know what they did behind the scenes was cut deals with al-Qaeda in exchange for that cash. Then bin Laden escapes. And the whole thing's over. And the U.S. is stuck in Afghanistan to fight the Taliban. And basically, it becomes another Vietnam Going now for what twenty years, if you were born after nine eleven you would be eligible to fight in that war now, so just sheer stupidity at every level, and the u s could have taken a lesson from what happened to the Soviet Union there, but there was absolutely no historical insight and no strategic foresight
1: but then like even after nine eleven it seems like they used these extremist Islamists for both Syria and Libya, right?
2: Well, yeah, the that's that's the US's kind of go-to is just any, you know, extremist group that can break down a geopolitical foe. Is this and it's the same in Latin America, you know, working with Colombian drug gangs or, you know, Juan Guaido in Venezuela, <laughs> or in Ukraine, working with the Azov battalions, straight up neo-Nazis. So in Libya. I mean, it's just hard to even understand the thinking of
1: yeah, with what Libya. prompted that.
2: But the, this was the most wealthy, stable African nation with the highest quality of life. And
1: a direct democracy.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, it might not have been a democracy in the way we understand it, but people had free health care and free education and pretty good infrastructure um, for North Africa. And that is all destroyed Today, as we speak, the country is plunged in civil war. Um, it's a site of open air slave auctions, just a horrible migration crisis, and a migration crisis from sub Saharan Africa through Libya, but also Libyans are just leaving because the country is destroyed. It's a failed By the way, state.
1: What I no- did not pick up on that you picked up on in the book is that how, after Libya, we got the rise of the white nationalist parties, like in Europe, as a reaction to the well, like Libya acted like a big, I don't know, tent for ref- yeah, for yeah. It was word.
2: kind of a holding. It was like a block or a holding pen. It played the role like Nicaragua actually plays that role in Central America, um, but uh, basically. To, to, to the um, British MI6 had always been working through the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which was an Al-Qaeda affiliate that was born out of the Afghan proxy war. And they maintained a rat line from Manchester, UK, to Libya. Um, Manchester is the home of the kind of Libyan exile community. Um, to undermine Qaddafi, they would always use it as a card against Qaddafi. This group had tried to assassinate him. And when the NATO intervention began in earnest, these were sort of the shock troops of the US and UK. They were the people who killed Qaddafi under NATO air cover in his, along with everyone in his convoy. You know, these weren't just Libyans. Like people are like, oh, just Libyans uh, were so mad at Qaddafi and hated him so much. That's how the US. They had a pro-Qaddafi
1: protest in January of 2011, I believe.
2: Well, yeah, there were, through, throughout 2011, there were huge protests uh, in, Beng- in uh, Tripoli that far outnumbered anything against him. And, you know, the campaign in Libya, it didn't start with protests like in, in Syria. It started with just a straight up military campaign by the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and all of these other kind of takfiri militias. And so Gaddafi was killed in Sirte, which is his hometown. This was swiftly transformed into the base of ISIS in Libya. It was taken over by ISIS. So that was the legacy. And Gaddafi throughout this saga of uh, regime, throughout the regime change war, had been warning. He warned Tony Blair. He warned people in the, in the West that Lampedusa, which is an island off Italy, between Italy and Libya will be swamped with migrants, um, that, migrant, that the migration crisis will become overwhelming for Europe because he had always functioned as a kind of um, like a a gatekeeper where people whose livelihoods had been destroyed in Congo and places like that in sub-Saharan Africa were coming north and trying to get to Europe and Libya would hold them back. So you know, a year after Gaddafi is uh, sodomized with a bayonet and murdered in the streets uh you have While david,
1: Hillary Clinton cackled like a maniac
2: yeah where she well she took personal credit for this um you know you have nato and even david cameron calling for shelling the boats of migrants uh oh com- my God. coming coming from libya because they uh, they were just um, overwhelming europe and then you have the syrian refugee crisis which is just completely misunderstood all the syrian refugees are seen um you know, in the West, as people who are just fleeing the evil of Assad, who loves to, um, you know, blow up protesters <laughs> with barrel bombs. When in fact, uh, you know, they're very split politically. And if the West, if the West hadn't come in with billions of dollars of weapons, along with their Gulf allies, and fueled and flooded the country with arms, this refugee crisis would have never taken place. And if the refugee crisis hadn't taken place. The far right in Europe would not be on steroids. We wouldn't have seen Brexit. We wouldn't see um, the alternative for Deutschland taking over Thuringia right now. We wouldn't see uh, all of these Islamophobic campaigns across Europe stoking fear of refugees, but that's the reality that we're in. And it's the direct blowback of empire. Um, And then the US, we don't even understand it because we're so far away from the Middle East for them to come here, it has to be on airplanes. What we experience instead is the blowback of empire through the drug war, through the Honduran coup, through uh, spraying crops of cocoa farmers in Colombia and Bolivia. And you know that's why we have our border crisis.
0: Thanks for listening to Historically. Now that all of our billionaire backers are cowering in wine cellar fallout shelters, we need you more than ever to support us by going to historically.substack.com. Smash that subscribe button, share our newsletters, share our podcasts, contribute $5 a month and we'll continue to light up your inbox with information to construct the tools to take apart your master's house.
1: Both you and I have, at <laughs> all the time, have been um, both accused of being paid by Putin and Assad simultaneously or whatever. (laughs) One thing that I noticed is that during the first quote-unquote Arab Spring, they had these like protests that were legitimate, like people who were saying housing's too expensive. But then at the same time, they would like confuse Sunni and Shia protests and then take it over to this, like I I once saw the CNN footage that showed like this protest that looked like it was for housing prices. And then later there was this crazy man that was like basically wanting to, I don't know, uh, I don't know, destroy Sh- Shia monuments. Like, And they conflated the two. And that's what I found so careless or intentional that they kept on conflating those two.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was in Syria in September. And uh, just because I was in Damascus in that area, yeah, I was accused of being paid by the Syrian government and no, it's just like, all these people can't understand. Why are you there talking to most the place where being in Why are you in the place where most Syrians live? I mean, how horrible. So, you know, I got to actually talk to people in uh, and around Damascus about what they thought about the events of 2011, um, 2012, when the whole situation jumped off. And there were protests that many of these people I spoke to considered legitimate. They were reformist protests uh, against the corruption of the Syrian government, against the Syri- uh, the security state taking control of civilian functions, against the Mahlouf family, which has always been kind of intermarried with the Assad family, maintaining monopolies. And I actually became friends with someone who actually put money into some of those protests, who was a local businessman. And he told me that, you know, we had Assad on the back foot, like he was ready to negotiate. Uh, he didn't know what had hit him. And instead the protests became militarized. The protest, they weren't protests. The, the opposition to him became militarized and sectarianized and everybody who was out in the streets just went home. And what, he said was that however much you know, the corruption was taking place, he had to choose between the complete collapse of the Syrian state and a takeover by the worst fanatics in the world or the survival of the Syrian government. And he and everyone else decided, well, the government has to survive. And Assad is now today credited with just keeping the country together by calling on his allies. And you see, I mean, how can you deny people who have Assad's picture on the back of their cars, who have his picture in their shops. They're not all Christians. A lot of them are Sunni. You always hear this like, uh, "Do you're denying their agency when you- Oh,
1: that's bullshit! come on. Yeah, you
2: know, this, 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 this kind of co-optation of oh. leftist language to defend imperial plans. But what about these people's agency? Basically, they just see him as the guardian of the state. And before the war began, See, the Syrian currency was worth, you know, forty pounds to the U.S. dollar. Today, it's something like sixteen hundred to the U.S. dollar. I mean, that's they have hyperinflation—four hundred
1: percent inflation, right?
2: Yeah, their whole economy is shattered, and they're being sanctioned to death. And people, whatever they think about their government, uh, don't want to become another Libya or another Somalia, and that's what the West wants to transform them into. So you know, you talk—you can really you know, noticed a lot of difference talking to people who actually participated in the early protests and people who I met in refugee camps who were from the rural areas who were um, just religiously conservative and had always kind of um, been deeply opposed to the rule of Assad simply because he was Alawite or because, you know, they uh, had suffered a drought or they were infiltrated by uh, Wahhabi propaganda. There are just, there are so many different elements of the opposition to Assad and it has to be seen in a more sophisticated way.
1: Yeah. Um. One thing that I kind of, I don't, I know this, you didn't write much about this in your book, but I'm hoping you know more than me about this. One thing that makes, like for me, I get red flags whenever everyone's like in America is praising a group. And so in Syria with the Rojava, I just. Oh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what their function is?
2: Well, Rojava is this kind of Kurdish protectorate, which has four um, sort of unnamed US military bases inside it. The US has operated openly inside Rojava and is the guarantor of its survival. Um, But to anarchists, it's this kind of uh, utopian. Self governing, autonomous place where they go and visit and sometimes volunteer and even volunteer to fight and get adventure. And it's, um, you know, if you talk, I've talked to a lot of those people and they don't know anything about the Syrian proxy war. They don't really have an opinion. It's kind of like for them a third way or an escape from the reality of anti imperialism. It's actually not anti imperialist at all. It, in many ways, plays an imperial role. Um, although the Kurds don't support uh, regime change, they have served as an imperial proxy, as we recently saw when everyone was freaking out about impending genocide and the Kurds being killed by what were essentially the repurposed Free Syrian Army, funded by the and armed by the CIA. So, and
1: that's based in Turkey, right?
2: Well, no, this is in Syria, and these are Syrians, oh, sorry. and so. You know, I have, I mean, there's, there's a good reason to sympathize with Kurds. They've been oppressed brutally by Turkey. Their leadership is in prison through the um, PKK, but they've been consistently re- rebranded by the U.S. military. And at the same time, these direct action anarchists are going out there acting like they're fighting for human freedom when they're essentially sidestepping one of the most important anti-imperialist Causes which is to stand against regime change in that country And one of the points that I made that I hope some of them understood late last year Was that the forces that the u.s. And its gulf allies had trained and armed the free syrian army were repurposed by the turkish government Against the kurd to create this buffer zone in northern syria Where turkey would resettle a lot of syrian refugees who supported erdogan and his islamist program And so, you know, this was again, you know, this is just blowback from the U.S. proxy war. And a lot of people who've been just supporting Rojava and ignoring the Syrian conflict uh, were now, you know, seeing the people that they really sympathized with being cut down and murdered on roadsides. But, you know, Rojava, I mean, I would just say if you're going to go there and over the last four years, those who went there to volunteer to fight Um, They could have just joined the U.S. Marines and it would have been essentially the same project.
1: Didn't the U.S. Marines actually train Rojava? Uh, Like, like I see a lot of, there's a lot of...
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the Kurds have uh, directly fought under U.S., uh, through the Syrian uh, Democratic Forces. They were fighting directly hand in glove with the U.S. military as their trainers. And what they were doing was part of the imperial project in Syria, which was to deny the Syrian government the ability to retake the northeast of its country, where you have the Alomar oil fields by Daraa Zor, for example, or where you have the bread basket of Syria. In fact, uh, we reported this at the Gray Zone, Ben Norton did, that uh, the Syrian study group, uh, which is this collection of think tank hacks and beltway kind of ghouls called for the Kurds to maintain uh, the control of those areas for as long as possible in order to prevent Syria from accessing its own wheat fields, to deny it bread, essentially to keep the prices of food high, to put pain on the Syrian population in the main cities. That's the role the Kurds were playing. And, you know, all of these people who think that this is just this great direct democratic organic project. Uh, they, they, they just look, they put blinders on and ignore all of that.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. One thing I still do not understand about any American is that the media always lies to you about every foreign country. Like, why do you guys believe it still? <laughs> like, probabilistically speaking, if they just like assumed American media hundred percent of the time just lies, they would be right about 99% of the time.
2: <laughs> yeah whenever you see something being hyped up in another country too, as something we have to care about, um, you should really start asking questions. Um, And when you start to see some foreign group in a conflict that's winning, you know, having documentaries made about it, that's winning Oscars, or a child who everyone is talking about on Twitter. uh, Well, that would be one example.
1: Oh, there were more than one? Oh, boy.
2: Well, there certainly are more than one now. Um, you know, it's it's sort of the year of the child where the children are the adults in the room. And clearly there are adults behind them. You know, when I was a child, when I, whether I was seven or I was 13, um, my opinions were not fully formed. And my ability to articulate them was not the same as it is now. But of course, you know, children can be great spokespeople, I guess. There's a great tradition of child uh, televangelists in Latin America. But anyway, you know, so you have to just be suspicious. We're constantly hearing all of the sudden um, about the Uyghurs in Western China.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um,
2: if you question that at all, you're accused of genocide denial. Uh, but, you know, we, there's something... question,
1: uh, I'm sorry, you guys also... That was so wonderful. Like, And then after that, I did a quick search via links and we've had 4,000 articles in American media and about 3,900 of them cite that one shady source.
2: Yep. I mean, we, we were told that uh, there were anywhere between one and three million Uyghurs in concentration camps in the Xinjiang province of China. And Ajit Singh looked into this for us and he found that this number is entirely based on two sources. One is a German uh, evangelical Christian who says that he's on a mission from God to destroy China as a communist country, and his source is a single Uyghur publication called Istiklal that basically just kind of conjured up these numbers from whole cloth. And the other source is a U.S. funded, uh, you know, anti-China think tank in Washington, that extrapolated those numbers of millions in concentration camps from interviews with eight people, interviews with eight people extrapolated out through the, you know, according to the ratio of population of the towns they lived in. So it's basically, and then these are invented numbers. Uh, China has admitted to having centers where they're basically taking people in, and they're participating in educational programs. And I can't speak to those programs or defend them or say that this is some great thing, but it does appear to be that we are being manipulated into an anti-China campaign with these uh, numbers that are intended to invoke the Holocaust in our minds.
1: But when Saudi Arabia had the same kind of, quote-unquote, camps, I remember reading from the New York Times that it was called terrorist rehab.
2: <laughs> right. Well, it's very similar to that. Yemen did the same thing. And actually, um, Laura Poitras, who was affiliated with the Intercept for a while until they like disappeared, the Snowden Files, uh, made a film called The Oath about a Yemeni program, which does very much the same. They take returning jihadists and put them in education centers and rehabilitate them out of the kind of Wahhabi ideology that they were indoctrinated into. Uh, China has a real problem in Xinjiang with the Turkestani Islamic Party, um, or the East Turkestan Islamic Party, which is participating right now alongside al-Qaeda, is an al-Qaeda affiliate in Idlib in the Syrian proxy war. Um, They got there through, thanks to Erdogan. But they have been carrying out brutal attacks on civilians in Xinjiang uh, for years. And this is on China's border at the crossroads of something like eight countries. It's in the center of this resource rich region of Eurasia, which uh, is st- strategically significant. And China's nightmare is to be sandwiched on two sides by jihadists and you know Turkey, which is a NATO member state, and the U.S. behind it to its west, and then in Hong Kong, the U.S. and the U.K. uh, to its east. That would be a strategic nightmare for China. The same for Russia, if uh, Crimea were controlled by a NATO member state, and NATO is literally at its doorstep. So this is what the real source of the issue is in Xinjiang, and this is why these centers are there, because people are being indoctrinated into Wahhabi Salafi, style, Islam, and the Chinese government does not want to allow that kind of um, ideological penetration. And people can have their opinions about it, but we need to just look at the facts as they are.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, one thing that maybe that might help people is you um, have done great report. By the way, everything Max does is like amazing reporting. So go to, is it the gray zone or just gray Yeah, the
2: gray grayzone.com
1: Okay, so there's this fund called the National Endowment for Democracy. And you've done, a, a, the Gray Zone has done tons of wonderful reporting on that. So can you just kind of give a quick meta empire thing of what the NED does?
2: Well, the NED is, was spun out of the CIA under Bill Casey, who was Reagan's CIA director, to do what the CIA had always done secretly and was being investigated for by Congress and to do it in the open. And they just fund civil society groups around the world, what are known as civil society, who are actually the sort of pro-U.S. neoliberal activists or the right-wing fanatics. Um, they fund the whole Uyghur movement, for example, inside inside Washington. The Uyghur World Congress is a project of the NED. They funded the Ukrainian opposition ahead of Maidan. They fund activists all over the world, the, the Nicaraguan opposition, the Venezuelan opposition. These are NED okay. projects. Zimbabwe, wherever the US wants regime change. And uh, you know it's done in a very kind of overt way. And if you talk about it, you're just accused of conspiracism or denying the agency of these brave young student activists who are just being pumped with millions of dollars from the US, but also are being um, treated to training sessions. And uh, I interviewed someone in Nicaragua who went to a training session at his college that NED trainers carried out and they were teaching them how to create memes and use Facebook um, to promote their political program. And basically, you know, in 2018, it all culminated with this campaign of havoc across the country. So the NED is really a central arm of U.S. hybrid warfare. And, you know, just in closing, because I got to Go. I mean, the most important thing for people to understand is that the U.S. can't really wage conventional war the way it used to, um, partly because of us, the anti-war movement, but also because the soldiers don't want to go. They're they, they're like glorified mercenaries who want to, you know, pay for their college education, and this is one of the only ways they can do it. There isn't a lot of motivation after 9/11 for the U.S. to roll tanks into a country and lose thousands of soldiers. So it wages hybrid war, sanctions, economic warfare, which kills lots of people. It's basically a silent war, which has no domestic repercussions. People don't talk about it in the U.S. It's not being debated in the Democratic primary. Information war, which is the media war, where you know everything we've been talking about are these kind of like media psyop deceptions, where we're told to care about all of these things in other countries that we don't fully understand and get outraged until somebody intervenes. And then finally, unconventional war, which is either, you know, the funding of civil society groups or the funding of Contras from Syria to Ukraine to Central America. And uh, that's the future of war is hybrid warfare.
1: And thank you so much, Max. We really appreciate this. Do you have any upcoming projects coming up that you wanted to quickly mention before you go? I know you have about two minutes.
2: I'll announce them as they come, but I'm basically behind on some important projects. Uh, the Management of Savagery is coming out in paperback uh, this spring, so look for that, and it'll have a new um, postscript bringing the book up to date. And, you know, it'll include some interesting details about my book tour, which um, supporters of Syrian regime change, including many central actors in the regime change war, Prevent, tried to prevent from happening.
1: Yeah, uh, I remember. Some uh, also a Israel troll also like
2: cancel yeah. event. Yeah, so you remember it if you've been on Twitter and you know, <laughs> it's a part of the story of my book. So I'll have a new edition out. So look for that, and you know, hopefully by the end of the year I'll have some new projects out as well.
1: Yeah, and you should definitely come again when you do because it was a pleasure interviewing you, and thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me, and I'll look forward to uh, following up.
1: Yep, talk to you soon.
2: All Bye. Right, take care. Bye.
1: Music for this show is done by RecTech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.